Before we kick off today's episode, I just want to start on a quick celebratory note. This month is the 50th anniversary of Oakland's very own sickle cell clinic, which is operated by UCSF Benioff Children's Hospitals. The origins of this program go back to 1973, when the Black Panther Party launched a community clinic alongside nurses and doctors uh, right here in Oakland. It was the first of its kind, and it focused on helping a population left behind by the mainstream medical establishment. Today, this clinic is a core part of UCSF Benioff Children's Hospitals, and it continues to represent the cutting edge of sickle cell care and research. All these years later, they're still developing revolutionary treatments right here in the town. If you want to hear more about this fascinating history, you can check out Revolutionary Care, an Oakland story, which is a great podcast produced by UCSF Benioff Children's Hospitals. You can find it anywhere you get podcasts, and I'll also drop a link in the show notes. You're listening to East Bay Yesterday. This show is about history, but it's not stuck in the past. Let's begin. Let's begin. Hi, everybody. Liam here. My guest today is Michael Cole Bruno, who's been writing about Mountain View Cemetery and the people buried there for more than a decade. On his blog, which is called Lives of the Dead, Michael tells the stories behind the names you see on the tombstones and mausoleums at Mountain View. Uh, if you're not familiar with Mountain View Cemetery, my favorite description comes from an SF Gate article written by Steve Rubenstein back in 2015. The, uh, the occasion for that article was the cemetery's 150th anniversary, and the article begins, quote, there are 177,000 people at historic Mountain View Cemetery in Oakland, many of them famous, and all of them dead. <laughs> they may be dead, but their stories live on in Michael Colbruno's blog uh, and also his book, which is also called Lives of the Dead, that he co-wrote with local historian Dennis Evanoski. Uh, I hope you'll stay tuned for my conversation with Michael Colbruno. This is East Bay Yesterday. All right, well, let's start out by, uh, can you just introduce yourself, you know, tell me your name and maybe a little bit about who you are? Sure, I'm Michael Colbruno, and uh, in my real life, I'm a lobbyist and an Oakland uh, port commissioner, but in my spare time, I'm a docent in Mountain View Cemetery and love to tell stories of what I call the lives of the dead. So how did you originally discover Mountain View Cemetery? Do you remember your first time visiting? Yeah, I walked my dogs there, and um, it's actually the genesis of the blog, because I would walk the dogs, and I'd see these names. They would look familiar to me. So I decided, because blogs were kind of actually sort of new at the time, I started posting things, and um, I just, they started to build up over time. And then the historian from the city of Oakland found it and contacted uh, Mountain View Cemetery and said, did you know you have somebody posting about Mountain View? And then they asked me to be a docent. And I really didn't want to do it because I'm really not a tour person, but um, I got coaxed into it and now I'm really enjoying it. 
And you started the blog back in 2009, was it? That sounds about right. Yeah, so it's been going for a while. And I've got about 370 bios on it right now. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the origins of the cemetery itself before we get into all the people that were buried there. How did Mountain View come into being? So it was a group of people. We actually have what we call a a Founders Day tour that we do uh, at the end of the year. And it was a group of like Oakland civic leaders and there was a cemetery in downtown Oakland and they decided they wanted to build it way out, way out in the country. And uh, one of the guys had land and they swapped it and that became Mountain View Cemetery. The other parcel that was swapped became Cal (laughs) or part of Cal. Wow. So the foundation of, or the founding of Mountain View Cemetery is tied to the founding of the University of California. In then. some way, it was the, the guy who owned some property. Yeah. yeah. Who's, yeah. who's buried there, of course. So you've been doing the blog for over a decade now. Mm-hmm. Um, has, has, the, has the project like changed at all over the years? Is, is it kind of still the same format that you started with? Like, how has your thinking about what you're doing evolved over all these years of, you know, writing about Mountain View and the people buried there? Well, it's more that it's come in segments, that I have areas of interest that consume me and I go in the wormhole. Like I'll find something about the Civil War and I'll dig into the Civil War. Right now I'm on a kick about sports figures and I'm going to start a sports tour that's going to be later this year. Um, I got into Asian American history and then, you know, we did some African American stuff. And then I got on a kick with people who were like first, the first person to do certain things. So I get on these little kicks and then I start kind of looking. Sometimes it's just random. I run across a grave and it's just of interest to me. And I look it up and that leads to so many other things because the history in the East Bay is so rich. And of course, there's a lot of people from San Francisco who were buried over here as well. So enormous San Francisco history. Yeah, that's one of the things that's interesting about Mountain View Cemetery is because it's been active, an active cemetery for so long. You know, there's so many different eras that you can explore through the people buried there, but also it seems like it really spans the socioeconomic classes too, whereas some cemeteries might only have wealthy people or some cemeteries might be uh, more geared towards, you know, people who have a lot less wealth. Um, Mountain View has everything from, you know, captains of industry, people who are fabulously wealthy, you know, millionaires, founders, politicians, leaders, etc. But then there's also people who died penniless, you know, people who were immigrants, people who, you know, from all walks of life. Uh, do, Do you think that's like unusual for a cemetery to have so much diversity in one chunk of land? I don't know if it's the socioeconomic is so so unusual because we do have a pauper's grave yeah and then of course we have millionaires row with all the really leaders you're talking about but i think what's so unique to mountain view is the the historic importance of the cemetery the level of interest the figures we have from various uh from politics to sports to you know to labor leaders i mean it's just it it runs the gamut and when you look at the history of california i mean i think you know, Kevin Starr would be proud, the historian of, of the folks who he could probably write a whole book himself of of the 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 folks who, who really were pioneers in different industries. I mean, the first, you know, Folger's Coffee, you've got Folger there. I mean, you look at the, the founder of the kindergarten movement, uh, MMR Weddell is there. I mean, you just can go one after another that are buried in Mountain View. And I don't think most cemeteries have that level uh, and that range, because if you go to Hollywood, it's mostly L.A. celebrities, mm-hmm. right? Um, but I, I, I can't think of many 
that are as rich in history as, as Mountain View Cemetery. Yeah. Now, well, you know, since we're kind of speaking broadly about all the different kinds of people that are buried there, who jumps out at you specifically as like, you know, who is one or two people that you think of right off the top of your head that were really exciting or fun or interesting to research and write about? Well, it's funny. I'm not as excited about the ones. We have a regular tour, which are all the, the people that everybody knows, like Ghirardelli, right? Uh-huh. The chocolate fame. Um, Samuel Merritt, who like Merritt. I kind of like the unusual, quirky ones. I got very obsessed with the gypsies that were buried there in the history of the gypsies. Um, there's a woman that's buried there who I try to sneak in on every tour if I can. Her name's Thalia Treadwell. Unknown to the world, but she was kind of the Paris Hilton or Jaja Gabor of her time. She was famous for being famous, really. And she had these scandalous love affairs, and she would get in fights in lobbies of hotels with her lovers, and she would get kicked out, and it would be all over the newspapers. What, what era was this? Uh, this is like, oh, you're going to catch me, and like I'm not sure exactly the dates right now off the top of my head, but we're talking early 20th century. Yeah. And... Um, what is sad about the story with this rich life that she lived of traveling around Europe and having these famous lovers and uh, one was, you know, worked for the newspapers in San Francisco. She had these really big named lovers. You know, she she died and was buried in a um, cardboard box, basically. And one of her lovers from England, who was a famous actor, came uh, to Mountain View Cemetery and heard she was buried there and walked the entire cemetery and never found her grave, but Mm. wanted to just pay that one last respect. So I like those stories because we'll always know about the the Ghirardellis and the Kirkhams and the, you know, the the general. Um, But we've, I want to bring back the memory of the the rich stories that are there. Well, I think that's a good example, too, of how you can learn so much about um, kind of putting our current world in context by studying the history of a place like Mountain View Cemetery. I've the last couple of days just been devouring your blog, you know, going through one entry after the other. And it's just kind of given me a new perspective on Oakland and California and how it's developed. And other things like the media, for example, like the story you just told, you know, we look at uh, the social media age, the Kim Kardashian age that we live in now. And it's like, in some ways, the media's kind of always been like that. People are always looking for salacious stories, you know, sex sells, scandals. And that's what this was. And that's what sold newspapers. And Thalia Treadwell was like the great example of what people couldn't wait to read about, you know, her latest fight with her latest lover, you know. So those are the ones. And then there are ones... Also, like another one you asked who I really love, like we have a tour called Naughty and Notorious, which is people who kind of die. Naughty and Notorious. Naughty That's and notorious. a great name it's for my a tour, most, I It's my say. most popular tour. <laughs> uh, and I do it with a woman named Carolyn Kemp, and we have so much fun on it. And it's always like it's packed. It's like I so bet. many people come. But that tour has people like Todd Crew, who was part of a, a, a hair band in the 70s called Jet Boy. And um, and he was also in a band called The Drunk Fucks, right? Oh, I wasn't going to say it. <laughs> okay, well, we can beep that out for when it runs on KPFA. But that was the entry that jumped out at me because I was like, okay, this is, I had no idea this band existed, but that's a crazy name for a band. <laughs> yeah, and uh, so, you know, he had problems. He was an alcoholic. Right. He had drug issues. But the story that's so famous about him is he was partying with Slash and a porn star and uh, he, over, he, he overdosed. And the story is that 
they left him to die. Now that Slash, you know, they they, they deny that this that this is this this is what happened, yeah. but uh, you know, nobody called nine one one for a very long time. Yeah. So, um, kind of the other one that's on that tour that I love, and they're right across the road from each other. This is the great thing about Mountain yeah. View; you don't have to yeah. you stones throw away, right? Is Ernie Lombardi. So I'm a huge baseball fan, and Ernie Lombardi is. Um, one of the most famous players in baseball history. I mean, he's in the Hall of Fame. Um, he was from this area. And um, the joke about him was he was the slowest man ever to play baseball. And the manager, I think it was Casey Stengel, who said... That's he's, quite, he's, quite a thing to be yeah, notorious. Yeah, he's so slow that when he runs to first base, it looks like he's carrying a piano. Was well, the, he was huge, right? Wasn't he like 200 pounds? He was like 300 pounds. pounds. Oh, but, you know, God. a really great player. But the sad yeah. thing is... And why we get to tell these stories about things that are current that weren't talked about back then is like depression. Mm. He suffered from depression. His wife was driving him down the coast to go to a sanatorium. He said he had to go to the bathroom. They stopped. He went in the bathroom and he cut his neck from, from ear to ear Jesus. and killed himself. So, you know, there are these stories yeah. that are are really rich. Now, we tell the story of Ernie Lombardi, you know, when the Hall of Fame season comes, but we don't tell that part of the story. Mm. And it's, it's, I don't want to say it's fun, but it's interesting and historically significant that we talk about these things because we didn't talk about suicide, um, you know, back then. We talk about it now, and it's an important right. part of the story. Absolutely. And um, you mentioned a minute ago the that one of your favorite... Um, profiles that you've that you've written is about the gypsy kings yeah. and uh we kind of breezed over that real quick but let's let's stop there let's hear about these guys because uh i think you mentioned in the blog entry and i should just point out i think maybe roma is the preferred term now i don't i don't i'm not completely uh educated yeah, on this i know I, I think there's some controversy about the yeah. term gypsy um so you know full disclosure apologies if anyone's offended for that but uh you mentioned that you had you didn't know that there was you know Roma or Gypsy people in Oakland, and Correct. that you kind of went down this rabbit hole. I didn't know anything about this story, and I think most people probably don't. Um, so, what did you discover? Who were these guys? How big was this population in in the East Bay? Well, it's it's such a great story because there was a gravestone that just had me just flustered because I couldn't figure it out. It said it had uh, Samson Palmer. I'm, I'm going to get it not exactly right, but but killed in a fit of temper by his nephew. And I was like, wow, that's a strange thing to put on a, a gravestone. Right. It, you, tombstones don't usually say who the person was murdered by. Yeah, we've got two of them in Mountain View. There's another one that was involved in a motorcycle accident. That's that's a very contemporary story. The family doesn't want to talk about it. But this got me like intrigued, and I couldn't find anything on it. And it said it happened in Minnesota, and so I called the Minnesota Historical Society. Uh, and then I just kind of lucked out one day, kind of backwards researching and found it. And uh, it kind of led me to the whole, like, the, the, the Palmers and all these gypsy families that lived in the Bay Area. And then we had gypsy kings and gypsy queens living in the Bay Area. Um, and sadly, one of the gravestones got stolen uh, in recent years, which really upset me. But you learn as you go into the files at Mountain View that the families held grudges for very long times. And I'm using the term gypsy only because that's what was in the newspapers. And so I often will quote the newspapers. So I understand mm -hmm. we have more contemporary terms and maybe I should start using them. But, um, but they would even unearth, uh, disinter bodies and move them if there was a family feud. They'd say, well, we don't want that person in that grave anymore. So this is amazing record of 
these bodies being moved around from families when they had when they had these family feuds. Wow, that's amazing. Because I feel like if there's, you know, one thing that most people probably know about uh, gypsy or Roma traditions is that they're very nomadic people. And apparently that uh, habit doesn't stop just because you've passed away. Um, yeah. Did Do you know if the, the gypsy or Roma communities in Oakland and the East Bay, were they living in one particular neighborhood or did they move around? Were they nomadic throughout California? So, so they lived in what we now would call the East Bay Hills. Many of them did. And they hunted rabbits and they would come into the city and they would sell um, like forks and knives and they would just, wow. and they were very discriminated against. They were mm. kind of the way, I hate to say this, but the way that we treat our homeless today. Mm. Um, and there was a lot of effort to get rid of the community. Wow. And they were very nomadic. One of the ones who's buried there, uh, you know, it's interesting, um, had come over from San Francisco at a time when we didn't have the bridge. And so they had to load up their horses, come on a ferry boat, you know, um, come over to Oakland. The thing that people don't know about the community is why they went broke because they had money at one time but it was when the gold standard went away and so they always had gold that they held oh. but when it was turned to cash they burned through the cash oh, and wow. many many folks no longer had money so it's a it's a wonderful history and it's one that we don't really talk about here but i always love the parallels to the present you were talking about if you don't yeah. remember your your history but you know the way that we've always had communities that we isolate that we that we treat differently and uh, i think it's a, it's a good remembrance for us oh absolutely absolutely and speaking of you know fortunes being made and lost that's another common theme you see in a lot of these uh biographies that you've written these profiles for people buried in mountain view um you know, a lot of people who um, are buried there came during the kind of gold rush mm -hmm. era, during the kind of Wild West era of, of California. And so there's a very common trajectory for a lot of these folks, which is that uh, they came from either, you know, back east or Europe or even China in some cases to California with often little education or no education, very little money. And some of these people that you, you know, researched and wrote about made incredible fortunes. Some of them held on to fortunes and created dynasties, these families that are still famous or wealthy to this yeah. day. But just as often they these yeah. fortunes crumbled. You know, they were squandered, whether it was through, you know, mismanagement or gambling or bad luck or bad investments, the Great Depression, etc. And, uh, you know, it's just fascinating to see these kind of um, patterns repeating throughout mm -hmm. history. But it is astonishing through those kind of gold rush era stories to see how quickly people were able to climb the social ladder in California. There's one guy, I think he was like a runaway in his teens. I'm, I'm trying to remember who it was, but within like 20 years of coming here, he was the governor of California, I think. And uh, I don't know if that, I mean, I, I know that there's still people coming to like Silicon Valley, for example, uh, to become billionaires now. But Often those are people who are already coming from wealthier backgrounds or people with really high uh, levels of education. I just don't know if there's that kind of social mobility anymore. And it's just something that I was kind of pondering, you know, thinking about reading uh, all these profiles of like how people could, not that it was easy back then to climb, climb up from nothing, but that uh, it happened quite often. Yeah, it was very common. I think one of the stories that's really fabulous is the story of Johnny Skay, who Mark Twain wrote about. I mean, this guy was such a character. Um, I always say that he would have been the, if he lived today, he'd have been like the first like 
insider trader. You've been like SEC yeah. violations, right? He was it's, like one of the original tech bros in a way. He was the original, like the the bad, the worst part of being a tech bro, right? Um, but so he, tell the story. Tell he the was story. stealing. Yeah. He was stealing Telegraph stuff, and so he knew. When well, his that, job was to work on the Telegraph, and he was like intercepting messages, correct. right? And that's, doing like insider trading based on his uh, intercepted that's messages. Exactly right. Um, but he, but he missed a deadline one day and like lost like lost somebody's fortune. But he was worth $10 million at one point and died destitute. Um, well, I, the, the other thing about him that makes him kind of like tech bro in my mind is that he was very lavish with his oh, spending, shall we say. he was flamboyant. He yeah. would ho host these parties where he would like fill up a pond with trout and invite people over and use like, you know, the best, finest meats for a bait, you know, and, <laughs> and these expensive, you know, ex you know, bottles of wine. Uh, I mean, he was insane, but it is like a lot of the people who are very ostentatious today, right? I mean, the people with yachts and, you know, you look at like Jeff Bezos and these people oh, yeah. who live unbelievable. Like existence. when you have so much money, you've got to think of creative ways to spend it. Yeah, yeah, like <laughs> flying to the United Arab Emirates to watch a soccer game with the, yeah. you know, the royalty of Europe. So, yeah, yeah, definitely. But there's a lot of stories like that. I mean, that's the thing about Mountain View. It's just... It's full of the, and, and you know, you mentioned the the people who who rose, you know, to the top. But I mean, you go to Millionaire's Row, and you walk down there, and just story after story of people who just had innovative ideas. Like Ghirardelli didn't come from wealth; they were, you know, a poor Italian family basically. And you can just, you know, uh, Bradford. A lot of the folks that are on Millionaire Row are people who came. We got folks, you know, who came during the gold rush and made millions of dollars. But yeah, people did lose their fortunes too. There was a lot of uh, gambling that was going on, uh, a lot of really um, ostentatious spending, a lot of alcoholism. In fact, one of the most prominent monuments is Cogswell, mm -hmm. who was a dentist. And there was so which much... monument is that? What is it? Is it's it the got spot? the giant star on it? You yeah. can't miss it. You walk in the cemetery and you see it like just almost straight ahead. Um, and it's got it's a kind of like of, a like almost like a Washington Monument. Type yeah, and it's got statues too. around it okay. and beautiful landscaping. But there was so much alcoholism and drinking going on, and it was destroying families because um, men wouldn't come home. They'd be in the bar all night. That he decided he had this brilliant idea that in order to conquer alcoholism, I'm going to build water fountains everywhere because if water's available, people won't have to go for whiskey. <laughs> Um, so we built these fountains all over the place. Of course, I don't think it worked. <laughs> Hydration is important. <laughs> Hydration is important. But, uh, but it, you know, it, it, it shows the interplay of the people buried there. Like, so we're the rich, ostentatious, yeah. drinking, huge parties. And then somebody who says, well, I'm going to put a stop to this and I've got an idea. Yeah. And, and you just, when you, the more and more I've done this blog is the intertwining of the history. We've got people who were proponents. It was, so I do a political tour. Mm. We've got a, a member of Congress who was a proponent for the Chinese Exclusion Act and one who fought against it. There's just these fascinating, I mean, you could just go on forever. Well, well backing up for a second, you mentioned um, the Cogswell Monument. And I think that's a perfect example of, you know, we remember some of these people because they built these enormous, almost temples to their to their memory, to commemorate themselves, whether it's all these different styles of architecture. That kind of went through phases too. You know, there was the Egyptian revival, the Gothic revival, the classical revivals, etc. Um, but that kind of uh, trend sort of died out, right? Like, it doesn't seem like today's 
you know, millionaires or billionaires are building giant physical monuments to themselves in the same way in terms of, uh, you know, gravestones and mausoleums. Uh, can you talk about that trajectory? Yeah. Before I get to it, I want to say one of the ironies that I always find interesting. So we do an art and architecture tour. A lot mm -hmm. of famous artists and architects buried at Mountain View. And two of the ones that everybody knows are Julia Morgan, mm -hmm. who you've had a series on your podcast, yeah. and um, Bernard Maybeck. So yeah. with all the arts and crafts stuff here in Oakland, probably have have the most humble gravestones. Bernard Maybeck is buried in a well, basically, next to the mausoleum with a little tiny plaque, you know, that's no bigger than a cereal box. And um, Julia Morgan just has her name on a gravestone with the rest of her family. And, you know, I, 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 Julia Morgan, the famous quote about her, you know, always was, if you want to know about me, look at my buildings, yeah. look at what I've built. And she didn't do it on her monuments. The other nice thing about Julia Morgan, and, you know, I don't think she was Jewish, but there's the Jewish tradition of putting rocks on the top of oh, a gravestone okay. uh -huh. when you go visit, which I learned later came from, because in the desert, if you put flowers, like in Israel, the flowers will die. So it became rocks oh. with the way you did it. But if you go to Julia Morgan's gravestone, there's always rocks on top. Like people mm. come to pilgrimage still to her gravesite to put rocks on it, which I just think is yeah. such a beautiful gesture. Definitely. Oh, but we were talking about how... Uh, oh, the, the yeah. cemetery. You know, a lot of this is it's, it's, it's how... I mean, times change. Like, I don't think the... You know, you could say it's just we don't build monuments to ourselves anymore, which I don't think is necessarily true. We do it in different ways. Right. But, yeah. Now it's like there'll be a museum named after a rich guy or a hospital. The or biggest changes like was the invention of the lawnmower, the electric lawnmower, because um, suddenly you wanted to be able to have these, you know, the flat monuments we see is they didn't want the big stones sticking up out of the ground because the landscape people had a difficult time maneuvering around that. So that was one of the changes when we go to the configurations where you see these cemeteries now with huge swaths of just flat. They're like, sorry yeah. guys, no more pyramids. The uh, landscapers no have been complaining. Yeah, the, the, you know, the funny story about pyramid, you know, we've got a couple there, but yeah. the, what everybody knows is Senator Gwen, mm -hmm. who was one of our first two senators, William Gwen, who was, you know, a horrible man in so many ways, right? He, he was a slave owner and was so pro-slavery. So our first two senators were John Fremont and William Gwynn, one pro-slavery, one anti. And people forget also the history of California. We were split as whether to be a slave mm -hmm. state or a mm -hmm. free state, right? But um, one of the things that we always like to joke about is, you know, he had that pyramid built because it was very prominent. You came in to Mountain View Cemetery, you went down the main road, there was his giant monument to himself, and then we built the mausoleum, which blocks it. So his it's it's almost like a metaphor for his legacy, right? Like that's a that's a thing of the past that we don't want to memorialize and remember and celebrate. Right. And so he's been hidden from the past, which in a weird way is this really beautiful thing. You bring up the Civil War, um, which I think is interesting because, uh, you know, I think if most people are talking about Civil War monuments, memorials, we're thinking about, you know, places like Gettysburg, places back east where a lot of those big battles were fought. But there is a Civil War section of Mountain View Cemetery. Can you tell me about how that ended up uh, yeah, happening? So and Mountain View, op just to put this in the yeah. historical context too, Mountain View opened almost the exact same time the Civil War That's ended, correct. correct? In the 1860s. Yeah. Yeah, and one of the, the beautiful things about that Civil War, I'd like to talk about the ironies sometimes. Yeah, Mountain please, View, I, there's so many ironies. Is you look yeah. in the middle of that plot, there's a southern magnolia tree. 
Wow. So it's just a little bit like, eh, you know. No, really, like, there's like codes kind of yeah. that you can read yeah, into there, a lot of there these are codes. Yeah. And, you know, Jack London's stepfather is buried there. One of those stories, like Dennis Evanovsky, who co-wrote the book Lives of the Dead with me, is our Civil War historian and does the most magnificent tours on the Civil War, um, is one of the black soldiers was buried in the In and Out area. And right. wasn't buried with the rest of the soldiers. Right. No, he, no tombstone, no grave marker. That's correct. Right. And yeah. he made it his campaign to have that body disinterred, to have the U.S. government get him a proper gravestone, and to bury him with his fellow soldiers, which I always think is just one of the most beautiful things. And it shows how our history, why it's so important. Yeah. And the family showed up, and there was a huge ceremony. Wow. And so he was, maybe he died 100 years ago, but he was remembered today. Yeah. And is being celebrated. So it's it's the history, even at the cemetery, evolves, which is such a beautiful thing. Yeah. But basically, uh, a lot of people who fought in the Civil War mm -hmm. ended up in California after the war and ended up dying around here. And that's why there's a, what, couple dozen, is it, uh, Civil War veterans buried in Mountain Oh, there's, there's more than a couple dozen. It's a wow. pretty big plot. And the other thing, too, is we have, we have Southern burials so we have wow. the confederacy too and there's actually one area that's near the the area the the you know the unmarked graves um and there's actually three folks on one gravestone that were all buried to, so they kind of were buried together and are the confederate uh veterans buried outside of the main oh absolutely okay yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. they're not <laughs> they're not buried with the union soldiers <laughs> okay that's good and there's there's like a cannon there too right there are cannons and then you know in this 1970s mountain view had a lot of vandalism it kind of went into disrepair and a lot of those cannonballs were actually stolen, stolen. and, and wow. sold unfortunately well, uh-huh but we've got there's abraham lincoln history there we've got people who served in the lincoln administration buried in that plot i mean if you're a history buff you just got to like walk around. Well, go on the blog. You can you and you can do your own history tour. Do you have a favorite uh, statue or monument? Or oh my God, um, I don't know if I have a favorite. I like the old, the original Crips because there's just an eeriness and beauty about them. And I love that um, people go and photograph wedding scenes. I think that's it's just a really gorgeous, magical space. I have a gravestone that's very special to me. Um, and it's a, a, a big band leader from the 1940s named Anson Weeks. It's Dancing with Anson. And he performed at the top of the mark. And the reason it's sentimental for me, not that I'm a big band fan or anything, but we had a docent named Sylvia Lang who who died kind of mysteriously, probably by a sneaker wave. She was walking some guide dogs she was training. And one of the things she always did in her she, tour... Just to finish that, yeah. she disappeared in Point Reyes, right? Yeah, that's correct. Wow. Yeah, wow. so we've, yeah. we've done a, a... She was fabulous. She's really who made me think it's okay to be a docent, even though I really wow. didn't want to do it. Yeah. But she always would go to Anson Week's grave and she'd crank up some music and she'd say, we're going to go dancing with Anson. And she'd get <laughs> everybody on the tour to dance on his grave in a good way. I love that. And so I've kept that tradition alive. So whenever I go wow. to Anson Week's grave, so it's just a little marker in the ground, but it's something, it lightens up the spirit. It's a great story to tell. He's a great story because he would have been the Benny Goodman 
mm-hmm. his day. He, Bing Crosby loved performing with him, but he got in a horrible car accident and he injured his back and he couldn't travel. Um, but he made his home in San Francisco, became like a legend, was still on the radio. But we've kind of forgotten him to time. But Sylvia never forgot him, so I'm not going to forget him. And I hope whatever docents come after me keep dancing on Anson's grave. Absolutely. We've got to keep these, keep these, some of these traditions alive. Um, oh, you know what? I just remember what I was going to say a minute ago. You mentioned that there um, was like some vandalism in uh, I think like the 50s or 60s. I was going through the old newspaper files mm-hmm. at the Oakland History Center on the top floor of the main library. And it seems like every decade or so during the first part of the 20th century, there would be at least one story about vandals tipping over tombstones or breaking windows in the mausoleums um i'm just gonna assume it's probably like teenage boys or some kind of because like a lot of the time it'd be like beer bottles were found near the yeah. vandal so it seemed like it was kids out partying well, basically there's a famous story okay so if you go to the old original victorian crypts um that we talked about a moment ago you'll notice the very first one when you walk up to them doesn't have the name of the family Everybody else has their names. And that's because there was a very macabre and famous grave robbing robbing that occurred there. And it was a group of kids from Skyline High School who were into like devil worship, Satan worship. Was this like during the 80s or something? It was. It was. And and why it's so interesting how history (laughs) stays alive, right? Is so they went in and they stole the skulls off the graves. Oh, my God. And you can see where they broke in. Uh, the family was so disturbed by this that they took the name off the thing and they moved the bodies across the bay to Colma. Um, wow. But the connection to today is the judge in that case in the Alameda County Superior Court was Carol Corrigan, who now sits on the California Supreme Court. Wow. So she was the justice. And I actually ran... Because they, they caught the kids and she was the one who Well, they caught them. a kid oh, and okay. he would not rat out the other perpetrators. <laughs> He refused to write it out. But I saw her at the swearing-in of another judge. Wow. And I told her the story. And I said, you know, this, you know, you still show up on our tours. And she was just tickled by the idea that we were talking about that case all these years later. Oh, my gosh. Jeez, that's creepy. Okay, don't want to think about that too much. Um, (laughs) Wow. Um, Let's see. Oh, you know what? We were talking about the, you know, the kind of architecture and all Mm -hmm. these structures. And... You're immediately struck by some of the biggest and the boldest structures and monuments. But when you get into the finer details, there's so much to learn. It's so interesting. Can you explain some of the common or kind of most interesting symbols that you'll see out there? Because there's a lot of like little... Uh, bits like you know they're almost like <laughs> this is gonna sound so bad but it, uh, some of them almost remind me of like emojis you know like the hand shaking and like these different icons and it just reminds me like the reason why these emojis are so instantly recognizable yeah. is because these are like ancient symbols that have been like drilled into our subconsciousness for like millennia yeah so we actually have a wonderful uh, symbolism tour that wow. one of our docents does and it, it is interesting because I've learned so much like the pelican being the symbol of fertility, people who had many children. Sometimes you'll see, because you know the story of like the stork we know, but they'll have a picture of a pelican. It'll have like four babies in its its pouch, you know, carried in a bag. That means they had four children. The symbol of wheat sideways is a symbol of longevity. Um, The, you'll see anchors a lot. That's a symbol of hope. 
of course you see people like or you'll see a finger or an arm pointing to heaven which of course is you know that the person went to heaven yeah. i don't know who gets to make that decision wow. on the earthly wow. place but um yeah and <laughs> you know then you the one that i always love i think my favorite symbol is you'll see an urn at the top of a gravestone hmm. and it'll have a cloth draped over it and that's the symbol of life extinguished so the urn oh. represents life and then the cloth over it means that the life has been extinguished wow. and then on the the Girdelli monument there are oh i should tell the story i yeah. guess so it's the Girdellis were catholics and we're actually buried next door at St. Mary's Cemetery because Mountain View is non-denominational. And the story goes, there's different versions of it, depending on who you talk to, that um, his daughter was dying and he called the priest for last rites and the, the priest was drunk at a poker game. An <laughs> another another irony. Didn't... A Catholic priest drunk? I don't believe it. <laughs> <laughs> and he wasn't even Irish. Um, and uh, so... Gerdelli was so upset by this that he got his sons, dug up the bodies in a wheelbarrow, brought them over to Mountain View Cemetery, had them buried. And when he built the monument for the Gerdelli uh, family, there are all these Masonic symbols. Okay. So if you walk by it, which, of course, to the Catholic Church was anathema. So he did this anti-Catholic stuff <laughs> because he, he blamed the church for not giving his daughter final rights. Wow. So, yeah, the symbolism tells a story. And the other thing, there's a guy named Doug Keister who wrote a book on, on cemeteries, a lot of books on cemeteries and gravestones. And I always would walk around the cemetery and I would see a period after a certain date. Like, we'd say 1885 mm. period. And I was like, well, isn't it strange that that's on some graves and not, and why is that? And, you know, I called him and it turns out it was a a convention of typesetters that made the decision that that's a symbol of the end of life and that we should put a period at the end of the date of their death. It only lasted for a couple of years in the 1880s. Huh. But when you walk around, these grave markers continue to talk to us. They continue yeah. to tell the story. And I find it interesting. You can tell the immigration history that yeah. came the Germans that came here, the Italians that came here, the Chinese that came here. You can see it by looking on your, you can see it by looking on the grave markers. It tells the story yeah. of when the, you can look at the dates and you can see when the Germans showed up here. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, just uh, sticking with the symbols for a second here, what about all the angels? Are the angels, or because and some of the angels are pointing up, like you said, that's like, I guess, to the heavens. Yeah. Some of the angels look almost tired, like they're kind of like sort of resting or, or almost weary angels. Yeah. Does that, is there a general symbolism behind all the angels? Is that just a trend? And then what does it mean in terms of the different body positions yeah, that some so, of you know, them I have are a laid whole out? Blog in. post on angels, and, okay. and I kind of would just walk through the cemetery because it's really uh, angels are supposed to be the symbol of the of the the messenger between God and man. Okay, right. So it's a very sacred uh, symbol. I had to learn the difference between cherubs and angels. I mean, they're all things that have wings. Things don't have wings. Oh, I didn't I mean, even know there was a difference oh, between a whole, cherubs and angels. There's a whole thing about <laughs> if something has a wing, doesn't have a wing. Like, um, but that's that's a whole another. That's probably a whole podcast. But it gets complicated because if you get into like a children's plot. I think it's just a different thing. It's a sentimentality mm. of like, you know, you see a lot of these little, um, I don't want to call them like dime store, but you see these like people just went to 
it's like the symbol of their baby going to heaven. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, I think the symbolism has evolved a little bit, but yeah, there's probably a hundred different angels. We've got the two famous ones. Um, the Schmidt Angel, which, you know, I think everybody, it's the most photographed thing in Mountain View Cemetery. I actually went to Rome. We had uh, a lot of dispute amongst the docents of the, the, the design of that and where it came from. It actually, I went to Rome and found the original. And then you go into the records and you see somebody actually went to Rome, copied the, drew the angel, came back to the U.S. and created that Schmidt Angel. So I have here a picture of myself at both angels, so um, and it was it was it was quite the adventure in Rome to. That's find quite this. a commitment to settle a docent well, dispute. But I was there. I, <laughs> yeah. was, I was in Rome. You're like I went just for that reason. So went in Rome. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Solve the angel dispute. One thing I want to mention, completely non sequitur, but I was just thinking about it, uh, is you know anybody who's ever high fived. If you've of ever high fived somebody, I think I've might have high fived someone once or twice before. There you go. <laughs> the man who is credited with inventing the high five is buried at Mountain View Cemetery, yeah. and that's Glenn yeah, Burke, who was the first openly gay player um, in Major League Baseball. And yeah. you know the story is he came to home plate, put up his hand, and. You know, he was a high five and it was a national TV. And, yeah. And there has been a movement in Oakland, which is why I love the, the you know, I call my the book Lives of the Dead because these lives, these stories continue to live is there's a whole movement to do a high five day in Oakland that oh. what if we all just got together and walked around in the street and just high fived <laughs> a stranger when we passed the street? Think how joyous this would be. And I love that that is from somebody here in Oakland. That's somebody buried here in Oakland. Oh, and that yeah. to me is such a beautiful thing that we're, we can celebrate life through these stories. It's death, but through telling these stories, there's still a lot of beauty in it. We, you know, we laugh at the story of Thalia Treadwell getting drunk in a lobby and you know, the thought of high-fiving people randomly on the street. There's just this beauty that still comes from these stories and remembering these stories. And there's also, of course, the the pain and the passion. You know, the General Kirkham, you know, is one of the war heroes who's buried there, who's, you know, revered, had the largest private library west of the Mississippi in his home here in Oakland. It's a Kirkham Street here in San Francisco and Oakland. Um, but I read his diaries, and he was the most anti-Catholic person. He had these religious prejudices that were jolting to read, and I always try to like put it in historic perspective, right? There are people who are great, who had horrible things about him, and there are horrible people who had kind of beautiful things about him, because I had the chance of one of the people that's on my tour to talk to his parents. And, you know, he died in a horrible, tragic way, but he was a beautiful child to them and, and mm. had enormous talent. And I always try to remember that every story is complex. It's the beautiful thing I love about doing this history work is that things aren't as straightforward. And now we're telling stories like around early, Ernie Lombardi. We, we didn't talk about suicide 50 years ago, but we talk about it now. And that's the beauty of these stories being kept alive. I appreciate you doing the podcast because people get interested. They walk around. They learn something new. They get enlightened. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think with every era, too, it's worth kind of revisiting some of these stories through a modern lens to think about 
ways of interpreting people's lives through sensibilities of change. Like, okay, for example, I'm being a little abstract here, but I'm thinking of someone in particular, which is um, Annie Glud, who was uh, known as Ulysses S. Grant's little drummer boy, but she wasn't a boy. She was assigned female at birth. And, um, you know, in, in the context of that era, she was just seen as, you know, a girl who dressed up like a boy and kind of played this role. But in the modern context, maybe this is a person who would have identified as trans now or identified as a, a man or a boy back then, but just that wasn't accepted by their yeah, society. It's a really, it's a great point. And there are other stories like that at Mountain View. There's been a lot of, uh, I've had a lot of requests to do like an LGBT mm-hmm. trans tour. Um, I've not been able to put enough together. And part of that is because in the history, uh, it really wasn't told. We have a lot of, when I do research, confirmed bachelors. That's and a phrase that pops up a lot, and especially in terms of uh, some of Oakland's founding founding fathers. That's correct. And so you get people like Felton, who Felton, California is named after, and uh, Doe. Oh, and Horace Carpentier, Horace our first Carpentier, mayor. who was yeah. known as Dapper in his obituary and stories, they would call him Dapper. And then when I dug a little deeper, I noticed they were all, there was a circle of friends. So a lot of these confirmed bachelors, dapper men, and it's hard to tell the story because I have told historic stories and tried to do nuances. Mm -hmm. Clearly a lot of lesbians, we've got two ornithologists who lived together for 35, 40 years, traveled the world, wrote stuff, but never identified as lesbians. So how do you, how do you tell that story? I think well, and a lot of people didn't even have, um, you know, they wouldn't have, like, written these things down in letters to each other, had evidence, because homosexuality was a crime in a lot of cases. I mean, you could be outcast. You could lose everything if you were outed, essentially, well, right? you know, you might remember, so it is complicated, because I've yeah. dug through a lot of these old records and yeah. diaries. Yeah. You know, Abraham Lincoln, there was this whole thing that Abraham Lincoln was gay for a while, because somebody read his diaries and letters, and he writes to his male friends and says, I love you, I can't wait to hold you in my arms, I can't... But that was common at a time, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which is why it makes that period of history so complicated. Yeah. Now, we have a lot of LGBTQ people that have died in the last 30, 40 years, including like a famous brain surgeon and people who died during the AIDS epidemic. We can tell that story. Mm-hmm. But the real rich, fun stories are 1850s and 60s <laughs> and 70s, right? And like, how do you tell that story? And I would love to do that tour. Yeah. I, I, I have a lot of research that I've done on it. It's just sitting in yeah. the file. But I've had a few instances where I have told stories on tours, particularly around um, Asian American history, where it gets very complicated. Like I told a story about Joe Shong. And he was, you know, charged with labor standards. And mm. I had somebody call me who was a distant relative that was very upset that mm. said, you don't understand how labor worked back then. I mean, this would have been a typical practice and you're making him sound like he was a bad guy. So I've kind of like not told the story anymore because you try to be culturally sensitive. I'm glad you brought up that point because I've even noticed that in the comments on your blog, sometimes distant relatives or mm-hmm. descendants will post a comment, you know, how dare you bring up this historical fact that, you know, my great-great-grandfather or great-uncle or whatever was involved in this scandal or was written about in the newspapers for doing this atrocious thing or being a slavery supporter or something horrible like that. Oh, I um, had, how uh, do you respond to that? Or like, I, yeah, what kinds of messages so you've gotten? So I had two granddaughters of a guy named Von Schmidt 
who I have on my blog, it says, you know, water stealer of the century, right? In, in <laughs> That's quite a, uh, and, quite a headline for the obituaries. Yeah. And they, well, 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 okay, what, why, did, why was he the water stealer? Because they were taking water from the Sierras. They were piping it down to the Bay Area, and he managed to figure out a way to steal it, and he got busted. He did all kinds of <laughs> other crazy stuff. So guilty as charged. Guilty as charged. But that was the headline in the newspaper. Yeah. And these two women said, listen, we're, how dare you? He was a, a good, noble man. And, you know, how dare you disparage him like this? And I'm yeah. like, I just quoted the New York Times versus Sullivan, right? He's a public figure. And I'm just quoting the newspaper. So do with it what you want. It went away. But there yeah. is a lot of that. And I think people care about the reputation of their families. But I also think, I think back on like when Ben Affleck was on Finding Your Roots and he wanted them to stop the show because they had exposed that his relatives were slave owners. And I think it's important to, and I know it's a controversial topic, but I think it's important to tell the history. Mm. And it's a chance to explain it. I don't think you hide and bury that history. I mean, certainly not now. I mean, the reparations debate is in the headlines right now, currently. Um, And, you know, speaking of that, you do a tour on African-American history as well, right? Can you tell me a little bit about that one? Yeah, we have like Ida Louise Jackson. I mean, the the first school teacher and what the, the horrors she had to go through the day that she showed up in the the classroom the first day, Mm -hmm. teachers across California walked out of their classrooms in protest. So white teachers across California were protesting the fact that a black woman was trying to... Here in in Oakland. And then, you know, those are the stories, which this is why I love people who were like pioneers like her. Mm -hmm. And she was an amazing woman. And even after her career ended, you know, she set up a poverty program to get dental care for people back in the South. Um, It has a, a, a scholarship fund that still is active at Cal. Wow. You know, these amazing people in the... And the prejudice and ignorance they had to deal with during those times. And I think the African-American history tour is just so incredible. One of my favorites, which actually was the beginning of the Dosen tours, is William Shorey, who was a, a, a whaling captain. and who Lived in West program. Oakland. Yeah. His house is still there. Shorey Street. Yeah. And... Um, Again, of how history stays alive. So Barbara Smith, who was the founder of the program, had discovered this grave and told the story, and it was the yes. inspiration. He was known at, at the time as a black Ahab. Well, right. I'm going to play right off of that because okay. I, I just commissioned a piece of music, another thing I do in another world of my life, and it was called 26 Ways to Look at a Black Man. And the composer is a, a woman named uh, B.E. Boykin, and um, the singer was this guy named Sidney Outlaw, and we were talking about doing an opera. And the story of William Shorey is what we're talking about today because they want to do Black Ahab because yeah. we've told the Moby Dick story. We've told the white story of the shipping captain, but we haven't told the black story. And this is what I love. Here we are 100 years later, and that story is still inspiring people because William Shorey is, his story is being told on Dosen Tours. It's in my book. And I love that it's inspiring a new world of artistic creation now. And I mean, if anyone deserves an opera or a film or something uh, about them, it's William Shorey. He was like this larger-than-life character, incredibly fascinating life and complex, uh, passed away during the influenza epidemic of 1918, buried in Mountain View. But he was the subject of one of my earliest episodes. And I spent, this was one of those people where even before I started the East Bay SJ podcast, I knew I was going to do something about him just because you hear 
the outline of his life and you're like, oh my God, and it just makes you want to hear society, more. He managed to fit yeah. into white high society. Yeah. I mean, yeah. he was, a you know, you talk about people who were unique in their era and you wonder like what made someone that special where they could break through all the prejudice yeah. and hatred and ignorance to like rise to the top, like in an industry where there were zero black captains. Yeah. And there exactly. were zero black people in high society. And there right. were zero black children in public schools. Um, it, it's really was, it's, it's, he's an extraordinary story. I don't like that he was killing whales, but, <laughs> yeah. but nonetheless, it's a great story. Absolutely. So you've, as you mentioned, done hundreds of entries, hundreds of profiles of people on your blog, which is ongoing. Is this going to continue indefinitely? Are you going to keep going down the rabbit holes, keep updating the blog as as long as you possibly can, or at least for the foreseeable future? Yeah, I've slowed down just because my life's gotten busy. And during COVID, I couldn't walk the cemetery. And a lot of my inspiration is seeing a grave, wondering who they were, looking them up, or knowing about somebody, then going to pay visit to the grave and seeing mm. it. So it's slowed down a little. I've started to post a little bit more. And now that I'm doing this sports tour, you'll notice this leakage of baseball stories starting <laughs> to get onto my blog. So... Uh, yeah, I'll probably start posting a little bit more. I've mm -hmm. I've got 150 kind of unwritten, unposted wow. bios wow. right now. The other thing I just want to mention just about history is when I started the Dosen program, we only we didn't have these specialty tours. We didn't have African American, mm -hmm. Asian, you know, business labor leaders. We didn't have any of that stuff. And the first thing I noticed in one of these tours that Annie Glud was actually who was maybe trans, we don't know, mm -hmm. was the only woman on the tour. Oh, wow. That's shocking. And I remember going into the first docent meeting saying, I want to do a women's tour. Yeah. And we have this, uh, we have so many of the, of the, what at the time was called, you know, I know all the words changed, the suffragette movement, mm -hmm. uh, the, you know, the women's rights movement. We have six, seven, eight key people from that movement. Yeah. You know, we've got the Ida Louise Jackson, these educators who were in there. We've got Julia Morgan, the the architect, as well as other oh, women architects. Oh, and who was the um, the Chinese woman that you mentioned? Who was the aviator? Yeah, Cha Ying, Cha Ying La, who's known, who is the inspiration for Mulan, was known as Dan Dan as an actress, um, was the first Asian woman to get her aviator's license in the United States, right here in Oakland, Amazing. at the Boeing School of Aviation. Wow. Um, so yeah, there's all these stories that weren't told about women. And I said, let's tell the story of women. And what I love about this docent program is the docents were like, let's do African-American history. Let's do Asian history. Yeah. Let's, let's, and it just start growing mm -hmm. into these specialty tours. So now at the Mountain View Cemetery, we're going to kick them back up here at the end of the year. The second and fourth Saturdays, yeah. um, we do docent tours. So you can go on the website. It'll have the schedule. We're going to be posting the new tours and uh, I'll be doing the Founders Day tour at the end of the year, and then I'm going to kick off my sports tour, which I'm very excited about. Very cool. My one of my favorite things about Mountain View, and I've probably gone there dozens, if not hundreds, of times over the years, is that I feel like every time you go, you notice something different. But there's also the things that you kind of keep coming back to because they're just so compelling. And like one example for me is there's these tombstones that are look almost look like they're being swallowed by tree roots. Mm -hmm. Like the tree roots are growing around the tombs, uh, the gravestones, I guess, and engulfing them. And it's just such a 
slow motion process of you know nature kind of reclaiming the land in this way and i don't know that that image just always is very striking well, to me well i'll tell you a funny story in one of my tours we stop at a tree and i say well here was the gravestone of this person um, but if you really want to see it, you're going to have to look up about 100 feet because the, the gravestone was actually swallowed up and it is it somewhere up at the top of the tree. I, now I can't find it anymore, but wow. it actually grew into the tree and, and became part of the tree. So, yeah, this does happen. Um, you know what? It's funny the questions I get you've raised. Like people always say, like, what happens underground? Like, what happens to the caskets? Yeah. You know, all that kind of stuff, which I don't do an under the earth tour, <laughs> but it is interesting, like, what fascinates people. And uh, one of the things I do want to do one of these days, where I'll get into the more macabre stuff, what happens is I do want to do a Halloween tour. This mm. is something that, you know, I get asked, I think, more. I think, other than the LGBT tour, I get asked more to do a Halloween tour than anything else. And I think it would be fun to get some flashlights and go out. But, you know, insurance companies have other ideas about that. But um, I, <laughs> we've got we've got some very macabre stories. And, you know, keep an eye out for the naughty and notorious tour that I do because we tell a lot of those stories on that tour. So. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, that's yeah. that's one thing that you noticed reading the blog. A lot of uh, murder victims, unfortunately, at uh, Mountain View Cemetery. Yeah. But talking about the trees a second ago just reminded me that we haven't mentioned the name of the person who... Uh, was the landscape architect of Mountain View, who I suppose we should uh, at least give a nod to. Can you tell us a little bit about that uh, that individual? Yeah, so Olmsted, Frederick Law Olmsted, who, of course, designed Central Park and some of the most beautiful open spaces in the United States. Interesting story, he was out in California, um, I think on a business trip, if I remember the story right, and um, one of the founding members knew that he was here and contacted him and said, listen, we're building a cemetery. Would you be interested? Oh, I think it was he was working for a gold mine that that's went correct. bankrupt. Yeah. yeah, that's correct. Yeah, so he's like, they're like, yeah, I got hey, uh, yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, you know, the, the beautiful thing about it was, you know, he was very big on the, uh, the open space. And I think one of the things you look at trends in cemeteries that have changed if you look at the early pictures of Mountain View, you'll notice all these trellises and plants and these mm -hmm. little like, it almost looked like picnic areas. But people would go to church on Sunday and then they'd gather up the family, they'd get lunch and they'd go and they'd have these little private areas where the family was buried. There's still a couple of them at Mountain View that you can still see. And people would put down a picnic and honor their their dead, deceased family members. Yeah. Um, Doing research for this episode, I learned a lot about kind of the history of the concept of the cemetery because mm -hmm. I kind of just assumed it was something that had always existed. And certainly humans have been burying their dead for as long as human history uh, has been recorded. But this concept of the sort of park cemetery is relatively new. I think like 17, 1800s, because before that it was more... Families sort of, and churches. Yeah, you, you buried people, like if you had a ranch, you had an area, you buried your family... Or you'd go to the community church and there would be a cemetery at the church. But yeah. yeah, it's a very new concept. I'm thinking late 18th century, if I remember right. Yeah. No. And it seems like maybe it's a concept that has kind of peaked in a way. Because I feel like now with real estate as a premium, you know, you're not going to be getting a space like Mountain View Cemetery anywhere near like a major metropolitan area <laughs> anywhere in the country these days. Well, so an so interesting trend. So you're correct. So most white people are doing cremations. Um, the, I think 80% of our burials now are Asian. 
And that is part of, uh, there's a famous book called Bury My Bones, uh, which is actually the story of somebody at Mountain View Cemetery. And it, it's really about this tradition of... It's like Bury My Bones in America or California? Bring or it, he died here, right. but they want to bury it and bring it back to to China, where he was from, and bury the bones there. But there's this different respect and tradition around the dead bodies, and there's a day of celebration. Um, the Chinese community, the Asian community will come out, and you know, you'll see them eating food and burning money and yeah. not real money um and you know Hell notes yeah and celebrating and celebrating yeah. the families at the cemetery so the the burial tradition is more rich in the asian community now yeah. which is why we're seeing you know why you, we've seen i think 80 percent of our burials now asian wow yeah. so having been doing this project um having been writing about mount view cemetery for more than a decade being a docent learning about all these people spending so much time at the cemetery um, I have a couple questions related to that sort of overall way that's impacted you. But firstly, how do you feel like it's changed the way or influenced the way you think about Oakland or this region in general, knowing so much of the history of all these people who you know lived here and built this place by writing about them and their final resting place? Well, I, I mean, first of all, it just shows you how rich the history is here. But it also, and I referenced this earlier, it's the evolution of Oakland and the Bay Area, the waves of immigrants that have come here and and put their mark on, I don't want to just say Oakland, because it's really the entire area. And you think about the people who were buried at Mountain View, the history is not just Oaklanders, it's people like from yeah. the gold rush that were there. It's mm-hmm. we have we have, I think, eight San Francisco mayors buried yeah. in, you know, here. We have governors from seven or eight states. I mean this is a the the history of people who had to move, who had to relocate to survive, to create new industries, who came to California. Uh, you know, there's people that have Hollywood stories that are buried there that came out here to be actors and directors and famous musicians. That's the way I think of Mountain View Cemetery. It's this absolutely rich history that we have in Northern California in particular, in California in general. And I've been walking that cemetery for 24 years. And without fail, on every walk, I see something new, a new symbol, a new person, a new site, something that I've never seen before. Wow. So for the people who have never visited Mountain View, who might be hearing this interview, um, besides checking out one of the docent tours, which I would definitely recommend, do you have any suggestions for them? Because it... It can be a little overwhelming because it's just such a huge space. You know, you walk in and it's not like there's one path. It's a bit of a maze. So how would you suggest that people maybe like approach their first visit to Mountain View? Wow, that's uh, almost an impossible question to ask. I mean, two (laughs) things I think everybody wants to do at Mountain View is you want to go to Millionaire's Row. You really can't miss it. It's the huge, massive (laughs) private burial vaults, mausoleums. And that's worth watching because it's rich in history. It's beautiful. Some of those were very famous. The guy who designed San Francisco City Hall designed the Crocker Monument. So it's it's very rich in history and layers. Um, and then just to go to the top of Mountain View and look at the views because yeah. you can see, I always talk about all the counties you can see. You can see Marin County. You can see San Francisco County, Alameda County, Contra Costa County, uh, mm-hmm. Santa Clara County. When you get to the top, and then you can see the entire bay and the bridges. Yeah. It is absolutely glorious. And especially during sunset. Oh, it's oh yeah, yeah especially during sunset. So now they're kind of closing around that time. I don't know. But if you have panorama, <laughs> if you have panorama and your camera, take yeah. a beautiful picture. 
I do, you can go to the Lives of the Dead, you can go to the, the blog, see what's interesting to you. Mm-hmm. I've tried to go back when I first started because it was casual. I didn't put where all the graves were, but I'm trying to go back and oh, okay. put where everybody's located. There was a map available on the website, on the Mountain View um, Cemetery website, so you can find the graves. Mm-hmm. Um, see what you're interested in and make a day of it. Go explore it a little Absolutely. bit. Absolutely. Yeah. I think, you know, the last time I was there was actually a couple months ago. For some reason, I haven't been going much lately, but... I went for the tulip show, which I try to catch every year. It's spectacular. How did that tradition start? Because you don't think of flower shows as you know well, something that are usually. So this helped. is back yeah. to your point of the cemetery being more of a park and a place for the public, which we really didn't talk mm-hmm. about. And Mountain View historically has been really good. It's a private. People forget it's private property. People think it's a public park and sometimes treat it like a public park. But it is a it is private property. It's run by a private board and a private foundation, right? But we've tried to open it up. The cemeteries tried to open it up. We have concerts there. We have Halloween events for kids. We have like the tulip show. We're trying to use that that chapel became a place to like have these like beautiful competitions for flowers. It seems like, you know, flower arrangements and cemeteries seem to make sense. It seems to go hand in hand. But there's a lot of that stuff. We have events for Memorial Day and Veterans Day, special events, bands come out and play. So it is a, it has become a public space and I hope people still treat it like the respect it is. That's still somebody's private property and they're trying to make this open to the public because it is a beautiful, special place to go to. That brings up an interesting question uh, about the future of Mountain View Cemetery. I know they just opened up a whole new section, so uh, there's space now for burials, um, you know, hundreds if not thousands more plots, um, which is the way that the cemetery is able to sustain itself by, of course, you know, selling those plots. But what happens when Mountain View is full? Um, do Do you know why we have fences around it? No. Because so many people are dying to get in. <laughs> Stop it. But I'm bummed. But I'm bummed. Yeah. There is still uh, all humor side. There's still plenty of room. Yeah. And you'll see a lot of construction and a lot of okay. the the burials. Now the Chinese burials are actually facing, you know, in the direction like the feng shui direction, oh, right? Okay. So you'll see how the burials are being positioned because yeah. that's they're following that that yeah. tradition. And there's plenty of space up there. It's you know it's interesting. Um, the neighbors have taken such ownership of this. People mm. view it as so much a public space mm-hmm. that when the cemetery wants to do something like build plots, there's huge like outrage and you know, um, you know public opposition to some of the stuff that that they're doing that you wouldn't see in other places. But it's yeah. it's because people really do love the place and want to protect what they love about it. For, you know, for years there were paths people could walk their dogs and meander, and now they're being built for burial and people don't want to see this happen yeah um but yeah. it is their cemetery and you know they have enormous plans for growth you know i keep saying it but the asian burial industry is robust mm. and that space at the top of that hill is perfect it's perfectly placed yeah. for what needs to happen well as someone who enjoys that view and enjoys walking around there i hope you know i understand this tension between the need for you know privacy and respect but also of course in oakland we need our public spaces we need places for people to go out and walk around and breathe fresh air and also just have a a beautiful place to kind of contemplate you know life and the world around us so i hope that it can uh remain open and uh maybe even expand uh, how open it is now that we're hopefully still coming out of the pandemic. I don't know, it seems like it's been a little bit up and down lately, but I know that it kind of really was limited during the pandemic time and it's kind of slowly been opening up, but uh, hopefully that that trajectory can continue. 
Um, Michael, I just, I am so grateful to you for all the research you've done, for all the research you continue to do and the tours you're leading. Uh, before we wrap things up here, is there any other stories we haven't touched on that you want to share or, uh, you know, things that you want to discuss? Um, you know, it's the story of first. I don't think we talk about it enough. The uh -huh. people who were like Folgers Coffee, like the first canned coffee, right? Oh, yeah, there's a lot of food history, a like the, food. the mother of the olive oil industry. Olive oil industry, Frida Amon's there. Yukon Jack, who Yukon Jack <laughs> whiskey is named after, is buried there. You know, the other one, like the first black man to be admitted to the bar in California is buried oh, yeah. there. And the first black firefighter in Oakland, Royal Towns. That's right. Yeah. And, I mean, it's just like, this is like... Uh, we need to do a famous first tour. Yeah. Uh, and that's the thing I, I like to remember about the place that you asked the question about Oakland, the place that Oakland has in the history of not just California, but the world. Yeah. And and we're continuing in this region to be the, the innovators and the creators. This is where the creative class lives. Mm -hmm. It's where clearly it's always lived. It's, it's something draws people to this area that do special things and create special yeah. things. Yeah. Well, speaking and, of which, got to gotta give a shout out to Mac Dre. There, there you go. Yeah, he is up there. Um, and you know, the other story, I mean, I, I tend not to tell it, but it's everybody asked me about it is, you know, the Black Dahlia oh, is yeah. the famous story. If you haven't seen the movie, one of the movies or read the book. So this and, is like a famous, like, is it, it's like a Hollywood murder it's story. It's a Hollywood right? murder. Yeah. This She goes to Hollywood to be a starlet and then she gets... Uh, her body gets cut, cut in half and dumped in the side. I, they, I, they believe they've solved it. Oh, wow. They believe it's the son of the owner of the Los Angeles Times at the time. Oh, my God. Um, because she was pregnant because it was a very violent uh, crime. Yeah. The way the body was ripped apart um, and she didn't want to have an abortion. And that's mm. that they believe they've solved the story. Wow. But a lot of people, you know, dispute hmm. the results. But I think through DNA analysis and all kinds of other stuff. So. I mean, we could just go down rabbit holes all day, you know? I mean, we haven't even talked about, like, really, like, the labor leaders, like, the IWW people, the radicals, you know? I mean, there's this... Vincent St. John, who my great-grandfather marched with. I mean, one of the greatest labor leaders in history is buried there. And people, you go to And his he was, grave. like, one of the founders of the Wobblies? That's correct, the wow. Wobblies. Wow. And, and people still go and put things on his grave and pay respect. Yeah, and I mean, another generation of radical uh, is represented there with little Bobby Hutton. Little Bobby of the Black the, Panthers, yeah. yeah Black so Panthers. He's up at the top of the hill. Yeah. And, you know, another one of these stories, we think George Floyd and all this stuff is new, but this kid, I think he was 17 at the time, came yeah. to the door in his yeah. underwear unarmed and was gunned to death because right. um, he was a Black Panther. So, yeah, yeah the, the history keeps repeating itself. Wow, it's just... I feel like the the listeners are going to get a little whiplash in this episode because, I mean, we're both two, obviously, history complete plus, history nerds. Yeah. You know, we could just go back and forth all day and talk about this stuff. But uh, check out the blog. You will go down a rabbit hole. Um, what's the website of the blog? Lives of the Dead. You just put in Lives, Lives of the Dead, of the Dead Mountain View. Yeah. Google it. I'll link to it in the show notes. But... Uh, Michael, this has just been such a pleasure having you today. Um, I can't wait to check out the new tour, and uh, hopefully I'll see you walking around Mountain View one of these days soon as well. All right. Thank you so much for the time, and I appreciate how you've woven in all the history that connects right back to Mountain View on your, on your podcast. My pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of East Bay Yesterday. I've been your host, Liam O'Donoghue. I'd also like to thank the Oakland History Center and Shaping San Francisco 
who co-hosted a live presentation that I uh, did a few nights ago about the history of Mountain View at the Oakland Public Library. That video, I believe, is going to be online soon, and I will drop a link in the show notes as soon as it gets posted. Uh, I covered a lot of things that weren't mentioned in the podcast, so if you uh, want to check that out, if you're interested in this topic, um, it will be available soon. Also, big thank you to Dennis Evanoski, Gene Anderson, and the Oakland Heritage Alliance. You know what? One other big shout-out I've got to send uh, to you, everyone who's supporting East Bay Yesterday on Patreon. Thank you so much. Uh, The show is primarily funded through small donations from listeners, and if you want to show your love, you can find a link to my Patreon page at eastbayyesterday.com. Look for that uh, donate link in the top right-hand corner of the website. Uh, A couple people have been asking me about the East Bay Yesterday t-shirts and hats. Yes, they are back in stock at Oaklandish. Uh, You can find those at the shops or at Oaklandish's online store for the time being. Uh, And the holidays are coming up, hint, hint. So uh, check out those East Bay Yesterday hats and shirts that were inspired by the key system. Also, uh, what else? Let's see. Uh, you know, if you enjoyed this episode, I would really, really love it if you shared it. Uh, post it on social media, email it, tell your friends, use that little share button in the podcast app. However you like to share things, uh, please pass along this episode to anyone you know who might be interested. Uh, the show's independent, so word of mouth recommendations really help a lot. Music for this episode came from my man, Jay Sonic, a.k.a. Jason Stinnett. Uh, If you dug those ambient vibes, you can check out more of his tunes through the Pacific Bells Bandcamp page. Uh, Jason created some of those sounds uh, specifically for this episode, so thank you so much, Jay. Finally, uh, don't forget to sign up for my newsletter. If you're not already signed up, you can find the link to that at eastbayyesterday.com. It's free. I only send it out about once a month, and uh, there's lots of good stuff in it. Okay, that is it. I will be back soon with more episodes of East Bay Yesterday. Thanks again for listening.